I'm Chip Granditz. And I'm Joel Parker. And this is Hell on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 26th, 2019. Coming up, Darwin's theory of evolution already has a reputation for being a game changer for humanity's understanding of how it came to be. Today, we speak with someone who believes we have only just begun to harness the full power and potential of what evolutionary theory can do to drastically improve our institutions, our communities, and ourselves. I'll speak with David Sloan Wilson, an evolutionary biologist at the State University of New York in Binghamton, who has just released his new book, This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution. He will share his ideas with us on how evolutionary theory is not just for traditional biology anymore. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. If you're an eco-friendly person and you're considering reducing paper by purchasing e-books for a toddler, think again. New research from the University of Michigan indicates that it's better quality time when grown-ups read toddlers a book with paper pages. The new research studied 37 parent-toddler pairs. It turns out that parents and children verbalized and interacted less with an e-book compared to a print book. Interaction is good. It promotes toddlers' language development, literacy, and bonding with the parent. Researchers observed that adults who read children a paper book are more likely to interact. They pause in the middle of a story and mention something relatable, such as, see the duck? Can you say quack? Or they say, remember when we petted grandma's cat? As for the fanciest ebooks that include audio and animation, that didn't improve relatable interaction. But parents did spend a lot more time telling children to stop pushing the buttons and stop changing the volume. This research about the value of old-fashioned paper books has just been published in the journal Pediatrics. The chaos in the bacterial community that inhabits your gut, that is, your microbiome, does not just cause indigestion. For people recovering from a stroke, it may influence how they recuperate. A recent study by scientists at the West Virginia University's School of Medicine suggests that stroke patients' microbiomes, and even the structure of their guts, may still be out of kilter a month after the stroke has passed. Previous studies indicated the immediate effects that a stroke can have on someone's microbiome, but they didn't explore whether these effects lingered. To find out, the researchers induced a stroke in animal models. Other models, the control group, didn't have a stroke. The researchers compared the two groups' microbiomes over time, looking at the changes at 3, 14, and 28 days post-stroke. They also scrutinized their intestines for microscopic disparities. So, did the bacteria prove to be friend or foe? One of the researchers' discoveries was that a certain family of bacteria was less prominent in post-stroke models than in healthy ones at 14 and 28 days. These bacteria, a common ingredient in yogurt and probiotics, are known for supporting digestive health and may be associated with better outcomes in stroke patients. The researchers found other bacteria whose populations changed several weeks after a stroke. 
The practical implications of these microbiotic shifts are still unknown. These and other findings in the study might point to new therapeutic options for a stroke. For example, could nudging a stroke patient's microbiome in a healthier direction? Using probiotic supplements or prebiotic foods, for starters, could that help prevent emotional or cognitive decline? The researchers' next step is to study intestinal changes in more depth. These results of the ongoing study were presented at the recent International Stroke Conference. Traditionally, we think of asteroids as inactive balls of rock merely floating through space as they orbit the sun. But recent results from the NASA OSIRIS-REx spacecraft are helping change this view. OSIRIS-REx is orbiting a small asteroid called Bennu. The spacecraft is there to find a small sample of rocks on Bennu that it plans to grab and then bring back to Earth. To do this, OSIRIS-REx has been extensively mapping the surface of Bennu, looking for the best spot from which to grab a sample. While it has been doing this, the spacecraft made an exciting discovery. Among the survey images taken by OSIRIS-REx, some images show small rocks actually being ejected by the asteroid. The rocks range in size from a few inches to perhaps a few feet in diameter. It's as if the asteroid is flinging parts of its surface into space. Some of these rocks will eventually fall back down onto the surface of Bennu, but some of the small pieces might actually escape into space. This is a new discovery, so planetary scientists will probably spend years figuring out what is causing the ejection of rocks. For now, we know that Bennu is the 12th asteroid to be found to have an active surface, spewing material like dust, water, and rock into space. All of this adds up to a new view of asteroids, where, instead of quietly orbiting the sun, asteroids are actively interacting with our solar system. The more we look around our solar system, the more exciting we find it to be. An evolutionary biologist with a special interest in human biocultural evolution, David Sloan Wilson is Distinguished Professor of Biology and Anthropology at the State University of New York, Binghamton. He is President of the Evolution Institute and Editor-in-Chief of its online magazine, This View of Life. But it's not just about biology. These ideas are formed by decades of research and drawing on studies that cover topics from the breeding of hens to the timing of cataract surgeries for infants to the organization of an automobile plant. Last month, he published his latest book, also titled This View of Life, to present a comprehensive case for what he calls completing the Darwinian revolution. Professor Wilson, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you very much. Let's start uh, by unpacking the meaning of the, the subtitle of your book, completing the Darwinian revolution. Maybe give a, a brief historical overview about how that revolution took place, and then introduce your notion that, despite its significance, uh, the Darwinian revolution is not yet complete. 
Uh, sure thing. Um, so for most people, when you say evolution, they hear the word genes. Uh, so uh, evolution being genetic evolution. And uh, when I say the word biology, that uh, raises a different set of associations than I use the words such as human, culture, or policy. And so that what that indicates is, is that evolution uh, for most people and for most of the 20th century was confined to genetic evolution. Uh, during the 20th century, and needs to expand in a number of ways to include um, everything that we associate with the words human, culture, and uh, policy. First and foremost, that there's more to evolution than genetic evolution. There's cultural evolution, and there's even personal evolution, the way that we change during our lifetimes. And so this means that all of the fast-paced changes that are taking place around us are evolutionary processes that could be studied with the same toolkit, as I put it, uh, that we that has been developed to study uh, genetic evolution. Yeah, you talk about uh, sort of the history and the the seminal figures in evolution. Of course, we all know Charles Darwin. It it is interesting to note that when Charles Darwin uh, wrote his his famous treatise on the origin of species, this uh, genetic mechanism, uh, the mechanism for heredity was not known at the time. I guess I understand uh, Gregor Mendel was a contemporary of his doing his research about the same time. So talk a little bit about how this notion of evolution, uh, random change, what we now know to be mutation, uh, was developed by Darwin without knowing the mechanism. That's a very complex social history, one that needs to be, well, Understood. For Darwin, uh, as you say, uh, um, evolution was about variation, selection, and heredity, a resemblance between parents and offspring. Cultural evolution was something that was studied back then, but back then in the Victorian era, it was just um, everybody assumed that European cultures, for example, were superior to other cultures, that cultural evolution took the form of some kind of linear uh, progression, and all of these ideas we know of as wrong now. Uh, but back then, people couldn't see past their own Victorian culture. So for that and other reasons, uh, evolution with the discovery, with the rediscovery of Mendel's work, uh, became highly uh, gene-centric, as if the only way that offspring can resemble their parents is by sharing genes. Uh, this is manifestly false. Uh, the study of culture was ceded to other disciplines, in the social sciences and humanities. And those disciplines did not become unified in the same way as evolutionary biology. So it's only now, within the last 20 or 30 years, that we're getting back on track. We're defining uh, evolution in terms of heredity, not just genes. And we are then um, basically, uh, this is what it means to complete the Darwinian uh, revolution. And it has to do much with policy practical implications in addition to what takes place inside the Ivy Tower. So let's uh, dive right into the controversy. Uh, There are many respected scholars in the humanities and social sciences, even today, uh, who consider evolutionary biology to have a a checkered past, uh, especially when it gets applied to the fields that maybe govern our social policy. Uh, Early in the book, you address uh, how Darwin's theories got, shall we call it, a bad rap uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, expand upon that, if you would. 
Sure, sure. And um, I devote a chapter to um, to uh, uh, dispelling the myth of uh, of uh, uh, social uh, Darwinism. That term, social Darwinism, uh, basically what it means is is the justification of uh, social uh, inequality. Uh, that's a bad thing. Uh, social inequality is a bad thing. Uh, but the idea that Darwin's theory per se led to a epidemic of such policies is what is just historically not uh, uh, not the case. So um, um, people thought many different things about um, when they were uh, uh, thinking about projecting Darwin's theory to uh, uh, public policy. I tell some entertaining stories about some of the uh, some of the uh, founders. The bottom line is is that uh, really um, what uh, evolution tells us is how to cooperate. First, that cooperation is necessary, and secondly, how to establish it at all scales, from the smallest of groups uh, to the planet, which is what we need to work towards. So it ends up being a very affirmative theory informing how we can, um, how we can cooperate at all scales. Yes, and, and yet, even in the late 20th century, uh, words like uh, sociobiology could often be considered a, a bad word in, in certain academic departments of certain universities. Um, and sometimes in cocktail party conversation, when people show a resistance to the use of uh, the theories of evolutionary biology to, to human issues, uh, they're concerned about something called the naturalist fallacy. And this is the idea, uh, they, they think that evolutionary biology is going to say, if we can prove something is natural, it is okay. So I'm sure you must have had cocktail party conversations like this before. What do you say when people bring up the naturalist fallacy? Well, the naturalistic fallacy is something that is a fallacy for the most part. Just because something is does not mean that we ought to uh, do it. And a major point made in my book is that evolution is both the problem and the solution. Evolution does not make everything nice. Uh, much of what counts as adapted in the evolutionary sense of the word is not adaptive in the normative sense of the word. So evolution results in behaviors that benefit me, not you, us, not them, or our short-term benefit, not our long-term benefit. And that's true not only for genetic evolution, but for cultural evolution and the changes within ourselves. Again, the idea that the individual person, you and me, are an evolutionary process, and so we need to learn how to manage that also. So the upshot is, is that if we don't manage evolutionary processes, they will take us where we don't want to go. And so what we ought to do, <laughs> what we really must do, is, is learn how to become wise managers of evolutionary processes. Uh, the status quo uh, is, uh, is definitely will not do. So, so uh, that is actually an affirmation of the fact that the naturalistic fallacy is a fallacy. All right, then. Give us uh, an example of perhaps this wise management of evolutionary processes, um, how the principles of evolutionary biology can be applied to inform policy. Give us an example from your book. Well, sure. I'll give you two, because that illustrate the uh, two major categories of dysfunction. One category uh, concerns behaviors that are adaptive in the evolutionary sense of the word, but they're um, pathological, socially 
pathological. And there we have, you know, good old altruism and selfishness. If we want to have uh, groups that are highly cooperative, where we work together in strong teams, then those groups need to be structured in a certain way to suppress the potential for disruptive, self-serving behaviors within our groups. And here I draw upon the Nobel Prize-winning work of uh, Eleanor Ostrom in a chapter titled, What All Groups Need. So there's an application where we can make just about any group in your life, any any group of people that are needing to work together uh, to uh, solve collective, uh, uh, to achieve collective goals, then uh, that chapter is for... Uh, is for you. Um, the second category of, of dysfunction is called evolutionary mismatch. And uh, basically, when all adaptations uh, are in the context of some past environment, and if the environment changes, if there's a new environment, then that can create a mismatch with the um, adaptations that evolved in the context of past environments. And an example of that can drop on uh, one of the news stories that you just aired before our conversation about children are um, reading children from our, uh, page books versus electronic books, and um, and how page books are uh, better. Why? Because actually, what the page books facilitate are real interactions between parents and their offspring. That's what's really needed. And if you look more generally at uh, child development, education, parenting practices, of course, we're all trying our best to do well by our children. But do you know, because of the um, various theories and expectations we have for this, we could actually be harming our children by the way that we um, uh, raise them. And especially when we try to accelerate academic learning at the expense of of, uh, age-appropriate play, especially allowing children to play with each other in a mixed-age, safe but unstructured, self-motivating setting. That's what's really needed for um, healthy child development. It used to come for free, uh, but now it's uh, in strangely short supply. So uh, we need evolution to to identify these these cases of... um, of evolutionary mismatch. You also had the uh, the uh, piece on microbiomes, and here's another case of um, of mismatch. With uh, when we grow up in overly hygienic environments, then that's a, a new environment as far as the development of our microbiomes are concerned, and so we have all sorts of inflammatory disorders based on the fact that we grew up in um, overly hygienic environments that are very different than the ancestral environment as far as our microbiomes are concerned. If you just joined us, you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, and we are talking with Professor David Sloan Wilson about how ideas from evolution and evolutionary biology have a broad range of application in human endeavors, not just the biological sciences. Um, Another uh, seminal figure that you mention in your book is uh, the Dutch biologist uh, Nico Tinbergen, his pioneering work in uh, ethology, the study of animals. Uh, you refer to his ideas frequently as you present and develop what you call these some core design principles uh, f- when you use evolutionary biology. Talk a little bit about uh, the insights of uh, Nico Tinbergen and how they helped you and others develop these core design principles. 
Right. I try to I try to cultivate an attitude uh, of um, of being like a plumber or a carpenter. Um, they have toolkits, and they arrive at the job, and they size up the job, and they pull out the right tools, and they get the job done. So evolution provides a conceptual toolkit for getting the job done, and um, and the simplest way to describe that toolkit is uh, thanks to Nico Tinbergen, who said that um, all products of evolution require asking four questions uh, concerning the function of the trade, its history, how it evolved historically, its physical mechanism, and its development. So, for example, the human hand, its function is to manipulate objects. Um, historically, it's derived uh, from the vertebrate lineage. It can be traced to the fins of fish. Um, uh, mechanistically, it is uh, composed of bones, muscles, skins, and nerves put together in just the right way. And it begins to develop in the fifth week of gestation. Four different questions that you need to ask about the human hand in order to fully understand it. And so what a fully rounded evolutionary approach is, is for any product of evolution, so that includes personal and cultural evolution, if we ask these four questions in conjunction with each other, then this is the the four tools in, in Darwin's uh, 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 toolkit. By the way, that's a little bit different than the eight design principles, which, uh, which are uh, due to Eleanor Ostrom, who I who I um, mentioned, and those are the uh, uh, principles that are needed for uh, for groups to function effect- effectively as teams. So, yeah, talk. Yeah, give us a, a brief overview of some of those design principles. What are they? You know, I can do so very quickly. How many minutes do we have left? We, I think I can. I we, can run through them all. Three to four minutes. Okay, that's enough. But first, I want your listeners to keep to to keep in mind to bring to mind. Some group that's really important to them, some group that's important to their lives that might work well or poorly, and then see if these design principles might work for your group. This is what Eleanor found for a certain kind of group. First, the groups that work have a strong sense of identity and purpose. They know that they're a group. They know who's in it. They know what it's supposed to do, and they think it's important. Secondly, proportional costs and benefits. It's not sustainable if some members get the benefits and others support the cost. So there has to be some sense in which what you get from the group is proportional to what you give to the group. Number three, open and inclusive decision-making. It's not going to work if some members of the group get to make the decisions and others are cut out of that process. Number four, monitoring agreed-upon behavior. If we have to know that that we're doing what we agree upon, to do. Number five, graduated sanctions. If we're not doing what we're supposed to, that has to be corrected, but it needs to be friendly at first and only escalate when necessary, and there needs to be praise for good behavior in addition to punishment for bad behavior. Number six, fast and fair conflict resolution. Conflicts will occur. They need to be resolved quickly and in a manner that's uh, fair to all parties. Most people in a dispute think that they have a point of view and that that needs to be Acknowledged. Number seven, authority to self-govern. You have to have elbow room. A group has to have elbow room to do these things, these other core design principles. And number eight, appropriate relations with other groups that reflect the same core design principles, which means that these principles are actually scale independent. They're needed for relations among groups, 
um, in addition to relations uh, within groups. And even though I was talking very fast like an auctioneer, I hope you can see how these principles might be useful for the groups in your life. <laughs> Thank you so much. You got through those. That actually gives me time to squeeze in uh, one final question. And this is about how things that I used to think of as metaphors only might actually, uh, when you think of it a different way, meet, be scientific conjectures. I'm reminded uh, there's a social activist, Vandana Shiva. Uh, she started out, uh, her education was in, in physics, and she became an activist introduced in, in interested in the rights of access to water for indigenous people and how that has been taken away by corporations that want to use it for agribusiness. Uh, and when she talked about the concerns uh, for the human race, she said the biggest concern is actually not the monocultures of the soil, and that is a big concern because monocultures uh, uh, do not have robustness. She said the big concern is the monocultures of the mind. And when I first heard that, I thought that was a, uh, just a metaphor, although a powerful metaphor. Uh, having read your book, it almost seems like it, it could be a scientific conjecture, of course. So uh, with about the minute we have left, uh, maybe if you could reflect on uh, what, what is science and what is metaphor. Oh, boy. So only a minute. But uh, the final thought I'll leave you with is, first of all, that what all of this leads to is a whole earth ethic, an ethics for the whole earth. You might already have a whole earth ethic. Now you have a new set of scientific tools for justifying it and uh, achieving it. And secondly, what you say about the monocultures of the mind and the need for the diversity of the mind, the whole symbolic world of our meaning systems is, is basically like our genes. We have our genotypes, the genes in our body, but we also have our symbotypes, the symbolic systems. And those symbolic systems actually function like a genotype. That's what it means to study cultural evolution. And so, uh, so uh, symbolic diversity, the diversity of our minds, is something that's exactly what uh, uh, this view of life, completing the Darwinian revolution, does, is it expands all of these great ideas to the life of the mind. And that's, I think, a good way for us to end. Thank you. That was David Sloan Wilson, Distinguished Professor of Biology and Anthropology at the State University of New York, Binghamton. He is president of the Evolution Institute and editor of its online magazine, This View of Life. Recent books include Evolution for Everyone, The Neighborhood Project, and Does Altruism Exist? His latest book, This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution, was published just last month by Pantheon Press. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Alejandro Soto, Susan Moran, and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music, Evolutions, by Jamie Janover. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Chip Granditz. <laughs>